Hello and welcome to another episode of Releasing Your Inner Dragon with Drake and Marie. I am Marie. I have a YouTube channel that's all about fantasy world building and I'm a fantasy author. And with me today is my co-host, Drake. Hello, I am Drake, Maxwell Alexander Drake. Everyone calls me Drake. Award-winning novelist. I've written in pretty much every medium. I teach all over the world. That's me. Today, we are going to talk about how to make a magic system that feels organic and real within your world. We're going to discuss some of the finer points of how you make that feel like a part of your plot and a thematic element of your world. Drake, do you want to start us off with what are your thoughts, your first thoughts of building a magic system? I think we're where I see a lot of mistakes in people making magic systems is they forget what the end game is. We're not building a role-playing game. We're building a novel. We're building a story. Now, maybe you are building a role-playing game and you can extrapolate whatever you want. But when you're writing a novel, the magic system is there to enhance the story for the reader. It's either there to enhance the plot. It's there to become a tool to use as like an overcome sort of like Star Wars with the force, or it's just there as dress, you know, window dressing, sort of like the Lord of the Rings. Like, how does magic work in the Lord of the Rings? Nobody knows. But it also doesn't do anything. Like it really, you know, the characters never use it to defeat anything. It's always them having to do that on their own. And when it is used to defeat something, like, for example, Gandalf does technically, I guess, defeat the Balrog with it when they fall into the depths. But you don't see that. It's not showing. It's really just a rescue from without moment. Mm. You know, the, the, the characters are running. We're going to die. Gandalf shows up and destroys the bridge and falls with him. And, you know, you get the famous line, run, you fools. Flee, you fools. <laughs> That's a rescue from without. That's someone else saving us. And, yeah, that someone else is using magic. We don't understand it. But it's not like Frodo is using magic to save the world. We define the ring a little bit. And so there is a few times where he puts the ring on to kind of help escape something or whatever, because we just know it turns you invisible. But we don't know, like, can you turn invisible and then go slit a bunch of people's throats? We don't know that. And so he never uses it for that. Uh, matter of fact, the one time that he does use it in the movie, because unfortunately the movies have overridden the books because I've watched the movies since then. When he's on, when they're in that, destroyed kind of place when they're on their way to Rivendell. Um, the Nazgul's yeah, yeah, the, the Nazgul's attack. And he's like, oh, I can do this. I can put my ring on. And it actually totally backfires on him because he doesn't understand the ring. We don't understand the ring. And it actually puts them more and in his, or he puts, it puts Frodo more in their existing realm or whatever it is. So. I think that was in the book as well. I, I think so. Like I said, it's just the movies have overridden those memories and it's really hard to keep keep them separate now since i haven't read the book in 10 years probably that's because every time you open the book you remember that tom bombadil is in it zing um sorry to all tom bombadil fans <laughs> yeah anyway i think that's I, that's where i feel like a lot of people make mistakes where it's like they just fall in love and it, it's, it's exactly everything about the world building stuff like we talked about when you fall in love with your scenery too much you become a tour guide narrator it's the same thing you know the, you 
you have to think about the fact that magic is there to enhance the story. It's not there to be a cool magic system that we're going to role play or anything like that. Um, and so I think that's, that's where I feel like a lot of people don't start in the right spot. The thing for me, and I actually recently did a video on this, which is on my channel, specifically where I zeroed in on elemental magic. And with something like elemental magic, especially, because that comes with a lot of baggage, right? Elemental magic systems are common. There's a lot of them. If you don't have a strong thematic element to your magic system and you're using something like elemental magic, your magic system is just going to blend in with the rest. Mm-hmm. It's just going to drift in the whole sea of elemental magic. And define define what you mean by elemental magic for those that might not oh, know. Sorry, by elemental magic, I'm talking here primarily about uh, the classical four plus one. So fire, earth, air, water, and void, and the power of friendship, and unicorn thoughts. Spirit, or yeah, yeah. whatever. Void, um, whatever. It's, it's yeah. funny because, yes, one of the things about when you introduce elemental magic and the magic works off the four base elements, wind, fire, earth, and water. Every time you introduce that, your readers are going to roll their eyes because they've seen it so many times. Um, And just to throw it out there, because I got to at least throw in one call to the TV show that may never get made. And you guys may never see it, even though I've written a bunch of stuff on it. It is one of the things that I love about Fiend Folly because at the beginning where they're like, I don't understand magic. And they're like, what do you mean? Magic comes from the four base elements. Fame, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so I play off of the trope that we're going to have four base elements, but the four base elements, because remember, what is what is my the thematic elements that I'm playing with in Fiend Folly is all about social culture, our social culture. So a magic system that gets its power from fame, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like it opens up so many doors for me to play with. I mean, season one, the villain, the, the villain is a fame mage which means he gets his power from being famous. And that's just me picking on the fact that, like, you have the Kardashians. Why are they famous? Well, they're famous because they're famous. Wait, what? What does that even mean? And so, and there's nothing more magical than that to me. So it just allows me to pick on a lot of social things here in a fantasy world. But that is exactly what I mean by a magic system that has a thematic component. And I think that quite often people invent a magic system that is completely unrelated to their theme. It's unrelated to their, it perhaps even is unrelated to their world. And if I can pause a moment to pick on D&D, D&D worlds in no way, and by D&D I mean Dungeons and Dragons, in no way, shape or form, think through their magic system. Because how do you have a faux medieval world when every cleric can cure disease and injuries and and bring back the dead bring back the dead at the higher levels okay that's at the higher levels but like a level one cleric which you get by spitting wrong you know because honestly it's level one can already cast cure spells Mm -hmm. how are people sick how do they have short lifespans how how does any of that happen mages Mage or clerics even can purify water, so you've got none of the water problems. You 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 just don't. Because yeah, every mean, village just... would have a first level cleric. Yeah. So in in D and D's defense, I'll play the other side of that 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 argument. It's not a novel; it's a game. 
And with game, we want to be able to play with rules and have fun and have balance. I mean, it's like, it's, it's one of the reasons why mages are set up the way they are. It's stupid. It's unlogical that they actually have these stupid limitations, but you've got a, a first level mage has got to be about the same playability and power as a first level fighter. And so, yeah. I got, I got no problem with that. Mm-hmm. My problem is that the campaign worlds don't take magic into consideration at all. It's like the compa- the campaign world and the actual magic system is entirely divorced from each other. Yep. The only campaign world, which in my opinion does it right, is Eberron, which is a campaign world where they have steampunkified them into the like the gas technology era using magic. So they've got like ships powered by elementals that fly. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know. That's why in the realm, so in the realm of the dying sun, the big project that I'm working on, there are seven races and all of them have unique magic. There, there's no crossover between elves have their own form of magic and you know so on and so forth. And the elves magic is combat magic. They're the only ones that can cast lightning bolts and fireballs and everything like that. Well, guess what? They're also the only ones in charge because you got sticks and stones and I got nuclear bombs. Like, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? And so the entire culture and the entire society has been built off the fact that elves literally have nuclear weapons and everyone else is, is using sticks and stones. And so it'd be completely illogical to have, you know, whatever, you know, the, the humans be this massive powerhouse because what is their magic? Uh, growing stuff. Like they can, they can really do a great job of making a bunch of corn. Which, um, to be fair, is an amazing thing for your civilization. It is. You got to have it. But it kind of sucks when you have a militaristic war-like, you know, race with nukes right on your border. <laughs> Luckily, this world doesn't exist like that. Uh, one of the things that, I, that I'm really excited to explore and, and hope that fans really enjoy, because this does tie into magic systems. So the entire world were one a thousand years ago when this big war happened and almost everybody was killed. I mean, there was whatever, um, you know, the elves were the most, there was, there was, I think if I remember correctly, there was about, there was about 500,000 elves left alive at the end of the war, but like humans, I think there was only about a hundred thousand and so on and so forth. And so I think there was less than 50,000 of the little hobbits, which we call fees. So after that war ended and they, you know, basically saved their world from this thing, everybody's just intermixed. And so there is no, it's, it's the only fantasy that I've ever seen where there's no kingdoms. There's no human kingdom. There's no dwarven kingdom. There's no elven kingdom. There's just the kingdom. It's called the empire. And yes, the elves are in charge. Yes, the elves are the rulers. Yes, the elves are the peacekeepers and everything like that. But it's because they have combat magic. But there is no war between the races. I mean, that's the one weird thing about this. And it's, it's, it's added some really cool things that I've really enjoyed playing with so far, but it's also added some weird things like, well, there is no elf human war that's going on because humans just live within the empire. They literally are just a part of it. And they're the ones who supply a lot of the food because their magic is based off of that. The ogres, which we call the ogre, their magic is all based in healing. So there's an ogre healer in every freaking village because there's a doctor in every freaking village. And so, you know, in our world, and so the magic has dictated kind of like how they spread out, what their jobs were, how they interact with society. The doors magic is based off of items, like all these different things of 
how they interact and how they become citizens, but they're still different races. So we do have some racial tensions. We do have this, we do have that, but there's no kingdom versus kingdom. You know, there's no elven kingdom that's strictly elves and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really interesting in my opinion. And it's been fun to play with because I haven't seen it anywhere else, but a lot of it stems from the magic. Each magic is very different. And so approaching it with logically, what would these guys be doing? You know, we know that almost everybody was killed a thousand years ago. It's only been a thousand years. They're having to rebuild society. They each have this little specialized magic thing that they do. How would they use that? How would they build, rebuild their society? How would they integrate with each other? Because there is no one place. Everybody's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so the magic did a, when I was world building, the magic was hugely impactful on every aspect of what I was doing. And that, that to me is, is kind of the key thing that I look for. If you're going to have magic that's intrinsically part of the setting. So in Lord of the Rings, it didn't matter. Yeah? The only place where it mattered was in Mordor. Because Sauron is the freaking eye. right? So, <laughs> so you've got a different setup. You've got Sauron sitting there watching the whole world. But Everywhere else, magic was in touches. So maybe the tree in Ministerus did something, maybe it didn't, who knows, but it didn't fundamentally impact the city. And because it doesn't fundamentally impact the city, you don't have to worry about it. Now, the elves have got access to magic, but that's why they also, everything about them is also built differently. Right? If you look at Rivendell, it's described in magical terms. If you look at elvish equipment, like the cloaks that hide you, the even the food, lembas, that can you know last for days and do all of this, like lift you up and so on. All of that stuff is intrinsically part of the elven race, and it's it is described, it is shown, you do get to see it, and because of that, it is part of their world. But for the rest of the world, it doesn't matter because magic is so rare. Right. So one well, of the big things right. that you've got to do is decide, is it rare or is it not? Because if it's not, then your magic has to impact everything else. I call it the Walmart principle. Like if you ever want to see how ingenious people are, just Google, and I can't remember the exact term that I would Google for this, but it's like you'll see them carrying a, they have a, a little Yugo and they're carrying an entire bedroom suite of furniture back to their house, somehow strapped to this freaking little Yugo. And, you know, we use things in ways that just you would never think of. So for me, when I'm, when I'm world building, it's always about extrapolation. So if magic can do this, so necessity is the mother of invention. We have air conditioning. Actually, I should, let me set, take a step back. We have Freon because we needed to cool ourselves when we lived in our houses. So we went down the path and we figured out that this Freon stuff could do, could extract heat from air and turn it in cold and, and transfer energy and so on and so forth. And so that's what we do. If I could do that magically, the world would never have Freon ever. Why would they? There's no need. And so, you know, the extrapolation part of it is what I constantly think about. I love going down the path of uh, the Chandler. A lot of people don't know what a Chandler is. A Chandler was one of the most powerful people back in the, the before modern age. They were rich. 
they were respected and they kept their secrets of Chandler's to themselves and they didn't let it go out. They were candle makers. That's it. That's all they were. But they were that powerful because they were the only ones to get light your house after the sun went down. But then the incandescent light bulb was made. Or actually, really, kerosene came out first. And the Chandlers kind of were like, yeah, I'm not going to pay your prices for that. I can just get this little lamp with oil in it and burn it. And then the incandescent light bulb came out. And, you know, kerosene went away. And now we have the the fluorescent bulbs and the um, the LED bulbs. And when was I don't even know when the last time I even saw an incandescent bulb. So technology moves forward and, and kind of makes things obsolete. I don't think you'd see an incandescent bulb these days. They're not really safe. <laughs> well, they're also just not. No one wants to buy them, so it's it's stupid to manufacture them. Yeah, they, they can explode. You know, that's what I think of when I'm thinking about, like, magic in the world. If I could do this, what would I do with it? How would I use it? And it's the reason why in Genesis, they had cold boxes, you know, in their kitchens. They had a box that you opened a door, and it was perpetually cold inside. It's not plugged into anything. It's, it's literally just a box that a mage made permanently cold and rich people who can afford it will have them in their kitchens. Not everyone has in their kitchens and, and how I limit things in that world is through econ- economy. You know, it is a very capitalist driven economy. And so mages are like, yeah, I'll make you a cold box. You're going to pay for it because, you know, I'm the only one that can make it. And so you're going to pay me. And so that's kind of how I limited things was through money. And money is a great limiter as well. I, I limited my actual magic system. So my magic system is extremely limited. It's the mage can affect his own body. So he can make his own body stronger and he can heal his own body and so on. But to move that power outside your body, to affect something outside your body, that is both rare and requires an enormous output of power. So... Because of that, magic is, while it's common for there to be mages who can affect their internal bodies to use hobby, the external magic is very rare. Yeah, it was was the same. You know, I loved uh, what Sanderson did with the magic in the Mistborn series, where, you know, you burn, you basically ate metal shavings, which Mm -hmm. seems really weird. Um, And then when it was in your stomach, you could burn it as a magical um, you know, magical ability. But the, the the thing he did to limit it is, I think there was, how many of I don't remember, it's been too long, but there was seven, eight, 12 different I, types of magic. And each one of them came from like, if you burn 10, this would happen. If you burn copper, this would happen. If you burn steel, this would happen. But even though there was not a huge amount of made, it was still a very small percentage. They all could only do one. You could burn 10 and do whatever it could do, but you could not, if you ate anything else, you were just eating metal. Like there was no benefit to you. And then the Mistborns were the ones that could burn everything. So they could eat everything and have access to all the different powers. And they were very rare. And and I think like it is worth emphasizing that even that, even though Mistborns are rare, even Mistborns were limited mm-hmm. in that they, could, they were limited to which metals they had access to. Let's save that for a second because that, that's going to come into play a little later in our discussion. But, but definitely that, that fits in with... The last part of this, what I wanted to segue into is kind of what we were talking about with the because we went through world building and extrapolation and and like understanding that if you have magic, it's going to affect everything. And the, the big things that, that society always wants is protection, food production and communication and really travel if you want to want to say that. So those are the things that I'm always thinking about 
okay, can my magic system make travel much more, you know, expeditious? Because that is something society is going to push for constantly. Can it make me more food? Can it store my food better? Can it allow me to talk to somebody that's not next to me? Can it protect me and, and hurt my enemies? That's always a given. Almost everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to blow your face out with a fireball. Okay, great. But what does that mean for the military? How do, how does, how do, how do battles happen if I can just cast a fireball and blow up 400 people at one time? You know, how does that change things? And that's something that I don't think, I mean, I think maybe the system that might have come close was, and I hate giving props to this IP, but, but Game of Thrones, because you had one family that controlled dragons that could literally just, just, just melt half your army with one and, pass of the dragon and skipping skipping the um tv series which while there were some moments with the dragons especially like the field of fire was really well done in season four or five but in the history from a song of ice and fire the entire way in which the kingdom was established was dude um i forget his name the first targaryen king came from dragon glass island sorry it's been a while since i've read the books and i haven't watched the new show because i'm not sure i watched I the trust pilot them. of the new show i'm actually pretty excited about it oh okay okay cool so because i've been like i'm not sure i trust you people after what you did to me <laughs> but just to just to sort of get back to the, the magic discussion around it so when the very first targaryen king came and he established um king's landing and so on he didn't have an army like he was outnumbered by three dragons to tens of thousands. But those three dragons counted for everything. Yep. You know, and later people did work out or kind of tried. Maybe they thought they worked out ways to count the dragons, but really they didn't. Right. Because it was three fucking dragons. I'm sorry. Well, that was, three, a, was three dragons. And that, that was the thing fire. that I, I think they did really good in this new TV series because yeah. The reason why they're so hard on uh, secession, like we need a male heir, we need to do so who's going to be in charge. We have to keep the, the hold of this. They, there's a line in there where they're like, look, the only reason why us Targaryens are in power is because we control the dragons, period. There's no other reason. And so I really love that they were very, very, because if you have nuclear weapons, you know the reason why you are where you're at is because you have nuclear weapons. And no one else does. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you're the only ones, then you're even, you're sitting even more pretty. Especially if you're willing to use said nuclear weapons. Um, because that is also a great deterrent. Because, yeah, I mean, the, the Targaryens showed, like, right from the outset, mm -hmm. they didn't burn many armies. But you don't have to. You only have to burn the first couple. Really? And then everybody else surrenders. <laughs> after, after you slaughter a few million people, your, your point's made. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. There's not really much you have to do after that. But yeah, that's, and again, that's how the magic and their magic, they don't have magic users and healers and all this other stuff. They have dragons. That's the magic. That's, I mean, yeah, there's the white walkers and all that. And we can get and all that. But anyway, just to simplify it, we can just they say have dragons. they have dragons and that's their magic. And so how does that shape the world? How does that shape po policy and political and, and religion and, and everything else? And so that's, I think that's the thing that we're talking about. When you're when you're thinking about your magic system and world building, think about it realistically. Think about how it actually would affect things. And thematically, I do have to give 
Martin props for this, because if you take dragons as his primary magic, which, you know, they are, especially in, in the earlier work, his core mages, the, the Targaryen family, are very draconic in that they don't really care about you. They're in charge and they're not afraid to like use it. And that's why you're right. I will give him props for that because remember, they have no dragons. Mm. They have none. They had dragons and they built up massive armies and massive respect. And then the dragons were gone. And now, because like that, uh, the reason why Ned Stark and um, the cur- the first king before Joffrey took over, Joffrey is what yeah. he thought jo- what Robert, but they thought so, that Joff was yeah. his father. You know, they went out and did it the old fashioned way. People were uprising. You don't have any dragons anymore. Yeah, but now we have more armies than you have, and so they they use that, um, which is why it was so dynamic for for what's her name to hatch three dragons exactly and have that ability to come back. So, so I will I will give him props there that his magic, his core magic, tied exceptionally well into the yeah. thematic elements he was playing with. Agreed. You know, and and I mean they were not good people, his mages, by and large, but he was writing very much. You know, it's a grim dark world. It's very much a crap sack world. The people in charge are not nice people. Look at that for an example of really how to delve into that thematically tying your magic to your world and its impact even if it's limited it's impact on your world and just extrapolate if i can do this where would it take me in communication food production and storage military and travel those are the things that drive inventions those are the things that humanity has always tried to improve always looking for an edge always looking to improve um, I think I said improve twice, but but maybe it's because we, we want to improve improvement. And that's what I, like I said, that's what I think about when I'm creating my match systems. Um, but that leads us kind of, kind of the second level of this. Maybe I stole this from Brandon Sanderson. Maybe I made it up myself, but but somewhere in there, Brandon Sanderson had has a quote that says, an author's ability to solve a conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic. And so for me, what I, what I think that, that I look at is magic is on a sliding scale from ambiguous on one side all the way up to heavily defined on the other side. And then, you know, somewhere in between. So as an example, just to, to get everybody on board, Lord of the Rings would be ambiguous. How does, how does Lord of the Rings magic work? Nobody knows because they never define it. What, is, what does magic in Lord of the Rings solve? Nothing. It doesn't solve anything. It has a few little things like here's some food that you can eat when you're on your travel. Here's a here's a thing that you'll blend into to the woods. You know, okay, Gandalf blows up a bridge and and takes the Belrog with him, but that's more of a rescue from without. It's not you know the players are the the players. The characters would have just died without it. You know, he's the Han Solo saving uh, Luke Skywalker for so that Luke Skywalker can do the actual overcome. Semidefined is more like Harry Potter where we know kind of how magic works, but we don't know every single detail. I mean, they say a magic word, they wave a wand in a certain way. Okay. But we don't know all the rules, but magic can do some things, but it still can't solve the end plot. So the example I always like to use is uh, chamber of secrets in chamber of secrets. Harry gets locked down there with the basilisk. He has his wands gone, so he can't use magic. 
magic does help him out a little bit. Magic gives him that kind of, you know, the, the Phoenix flies in, drops the sorting hat, the sorting hat pukes out the, the Gryffindor sword, and then you're on your own, kid. Like, that's all magic's going to do for you. Even even in the more direct solution, like in the, um, which one is a chamber, not Chamber of Secrets, um, Goblet, Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire. Where he's facing off against the dragon. He can't use magic against the dragon directly because we know he's not that powerful, right? It, it's like dragons and all the rest of that. But it can summon his broom. And right. his broom is then the overcome because we know he's got a flying ability. We know how the broom works. It's basically we have defined. We have defined the broom, and that's where it comes to the defined side of magic. When you define it to the level where it's a tool, then it doesn't make the reader feel like you're cheating. So when he uses his magic broom to do what he does in the Goblets of Fire, no one feels that we've already seen him use that magic broom in a very, very uh, almost We've seen uh, it since book one, where right. he took the broom and it's the game of Quidditch and the whole thing has been there throughout, you know? And it's just become a tool. It's like riding a horse or, you know, driving a motorcycle. There's nothing magical about it at that point, even though it's a flying broom. So, yeah. And that and the, the, the one that I like to use for the fine side is Mistborn. Because Mistborn, you learn that magic system to the T and you know every little detail about it, how it works, when it works, why it works, what you have to do to get it to work, what you have to do to get it not to work, how to use it in different ways. Um, that's also another great example of the extrapolation. So in the beginning of that, you find out that it's actually code in the law that at the top of every building, they have metal spikes that stick out. Like, they're not for protection, obviously, because there's only one every six feet or whatever. But it's, it's law, and nobody knows why. And you don't know why until you learn the magic system, and then you realize one form of magic is they can push off of metal. And if you could push off of metal and you have the entire city lined with these metal rods, you can fly across the city by just pushing off this one, pushing off the next one, pushing off the next one, pushing off the next one. And once you learn that, you're like, oh, yeah. And so extrapolation, the world has changed laws to make it because the ruling class are the only ones that control the people who have magic. And so they want their people to be able to go across city really fast with no one seeing them. They make laws that, that facilitate that. And so extrapolation, yeah. we, we need to ask, what would this actually do to my world? How would this change my world? How would it affect my world? And so not only is that, you know, the four things I talked about, none of those metal rods helping with combat with, you know, fighting each other. It's also transportation. And maybe even communication, because I need to get this message across town. Go do this now. So, yeah, so that's the scale. You go from ambiguous to, to defined, and depending on how how much closer to the defined side you get is how much you can use the items as tools. And the broom is a great example. I've never even thought about that one. But that one is probably better than my Chamber of Secrets one. But, yeah, it's, it's just it's defined at that point, and so we can use it. I'm also an aficionado of, of Sanderson's Laws of Magic. I guess one of the ones that we did touch on earlier is limitations. And he specifically says limitations are what people remember more. When I'm, when I'm making a magic system, I actually have four categories that I drop the magic in. And I don't always use the, the fourth one. Matter of fact, I don't know if I've even ever used the fourth one because it's a little tougher. Um, but to, to not start with limitations is abilities. So I always figure out abilities. What can the magic do? You know, because those are the cool things. Those are the things that you have fun creating. Oh, magic can do this and magic can do that and, and so on and so forth. But though you're right. 
those are not the things that that people really remember. And also, if they're too overpowered, then the character doesn't earn what they get. That's why I don't. I'm not a Superman fan. He's invulnerable and gorgeous and strongest and fastest and like okay, great. What does he have to struggle? You know, I'm definitely rooting for Batman in the Batman versus Superman fight because the, that guy's the, got nothing. The things you remember from Superman is when he's you know had kryptonite applied and he's suffering through. Actually, the thing I remember is he stands there with his chest out as they unload the clip at him, and then they throw the gun at him, and he's like, ah, ah you throw the gun at me. It's like, wait, I just shot you eight times in the face, and you didn't flinch, and you're going to dodge the gun? I realize that's because the actor can't actually take the gun to the face, and the bullets are fake. <laughs> so after, after abilities, after I figure out what I need the magic system to do to be able to drive the story that I'm telling, that's where... I really start honing in on limitations and limitations are what the magic can not do period. Like one limitations in every single one of my magic systems, every one of them, you cannot bring someone back from the dead because death is in my opinion, the strongest plot device that, that you can use in a story by eliminating that it makes everything just weak. Sort of like one of my first meetings with Sony when we were still working out what I was going to do and everything like that. They were like, all right, well, how are you going to handle regeneration? Now, like, what do you mean? So well, in the game, if you die, you, 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 re, you, re, you, re-res. you, you, you come at one of these res spots. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen in the stories. And they're like, yeah, no, you need to incorporate. I'm like, no, I'm not. Nope. Nope. In the fiction side of it, if a character dies, they're dead. Period. Because I'm not going to lose that plot yeah. device. It's such a powerful tool. The problem and- is that death is the ultimate consequence. Right. And if your magic system negates the ultimate consequence without cost. And not even the ultimate consequence, that's the ultimate sacrifice for the for the greater good or whatever. Now, I will say I have seen this done well, but exactly once. And that is Martin's resurrection. Because the people come back in Martin's world with, with Beric Dondarrion, but they don't come back right. See, I don't, I don't consider that resurrection. So in yeah. my, my walking dead, or walking dead, my dead Ned comic book that unfortunately the artist got cancer on. And so it's never been released. The main character dies in the first episode and then is resurrected, you know, but resurrection sucks because he's still dead and he still feels it. And he's mm-hmm. literally just rotting and he wants to do nothing but die. And so even though, Technically, you say, well, in that magic system, you have resurrection. Eh, not really, because you don't want it to happen. You know, spoilers for Feast for Crows if you haven't read the book. But Caitlin, Ned's wife, gets resurrected. But she still has her throat cut. She, she can't, like, talk. And, and I mean, wow. It was, it was so well yeah. done. Um, right. But like but, I said, I don't consider that resurrection. Yeah, but that is, that is at huge costs. You know, it's not just yeah. like, poof, and you're back. Right. <laughs> And actually, going back to, we had talked about reviewing this book series at the very beginning. We just never had time to do it. But uh, Joel Rosenberg's uh, Guards of the Flame series, one of the main characters dies in that. And they take her back to the magic world to get her resurrected. And when they do, she's like, yeah, I've changed so much. I cannot be your friend anymore. I'm I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do this. And she literally just extracts herself from it. And so there, was, there wasn't a cost to her, like she's just back and she's just normal, but there's a cost to everyone else because they lost her as a companion, as a friend, as a, you know, 
mm. as a part of their party. And so I thought that was really well thought out and really well done to have a cost, even though she came back to life and she was fine, it still gave a cost. James, no, they did resurrect mm. James. They did okay. resurrect James. And James was uh, James was fine. Oh, no, no, you're right. They resurrected James. But, and with her, they just fixed your mind. Yes. You're right. But, but James's resurrection involved a personal sacrifice from every I mean, one of the mind. other characters and yes. a commitment from them for a future payment. You're right. I totally yeah. flubbed that. Yeah. It's been a while. Like I said, we were going to reread it and then talk about it, and we just never have. But Joel Rosenberg did write in a D&D style world. And oh, I, yeah. did, I did find it very interesting that he actually did use magic in a very like industrial way as well. You look at things like his mm-hmm. waste, the sewage waste disposal system and all that kind of thing. It was very well done. And I've never made a secret that that probably is one of the things that was a big influence on me for creating the Genesis saga, the magic. Because I always describe the, the magic in the Genesis world as carpentry magic until it isn't. Eventually it does morph into much more powerful magic but but for the first novel and when you meet it and like like there's a in the next podcast we're actually going to talk about writing magic so you if you join us for the next podcast you're going to see me reading this section but like i love this one joke where um he burns a piece of paper and he's like so could i use magic to turn the paper back into unburnt and he's like well yeah but why would you because it take like five hours like you just walk down to the store and just buy another piece like that's way easier than spending five hours to make this piece of paper not burnt. And so that's the limitation that I gave to that magic is because like that coal box, one of the reasons why it takes so long is it takes three days to make a coal box. And so you have to have at least two mages passing off. Usually they'll have even more, but it has to be a continuous unbroken magical thing that takes 72 hours to make. And if I'm a mages guild and you're going to take three of my people to make this stupid coal box for you, you're going to pay. You can pay me some money. And so that's how. So really, the, the, when you meet the mages in Genesis in the beginning, they're more like a, a construction team. It's like, oh, I can make that rope unbreakable. I can, you know, I can do this. I can do that. But it's, it's, it takes hours and hours and hours. You couldn't kill anybody with it. I mean, technically you could, but they'd have to stand there the whole time while you're doing it and allow you to do it. My my magic is extremely combat focused, but it's mm-hmm. almost impossible to use outside of combat because you can't make items from it. Well, and I do have, there's a different type of mage called a Tatsujin, which is all mm-hmm. internal magic, and they are very violent and very, you know, they just like yours, takes a lot of damage, increases their speed, increases their strength, increases their ability to see things and so on and so forth. But it's all internal. They can't do anything external. And so the system still has it. I've just broken them. Actually, there's three halves to it because there's those. There's the Masukai that can only affect um, external things like that. And then there's the um, the Sulak, the Masulak that can only affect other people on the inside. So they are nasty if they want to be, but really they're the healers of the world. But they can also rot your heart out. Again, it would take them about six hours in the beginning um, until the magic gets supercharged. But yeah, it's still the same thing. I divide it into, into three different areas. I'm, and that's a good segue to the third aspect that I always think about, which is weaknesses. So weaknesses I describe as ways that the story can take magic from the characters. So abilities are what the characters can do with magic. Limitations are what the characters cannot do with the magic, period, no matter what. Don't break those rules. And the weaknesses are 
how can the story take magic away from the characters? Because again, if magic becomes too powerful, whatever. So like Harry Potter, like in the Chamber of Secrets, this is always the dumbest thing. So if you're a police officer and you bust into a house and there's a 10 year old girl unconscious on the other side of the room, obviously what you do is you take your gun and put it on the ground and then run over to the girl to see if she's okay. Obviously that's how you would do that. So obviously when Harry Potter sees Ginny laying there, he's obviously just going to set his magic wand down and then run across the, the room to see if she's okay. Because why wouldn't you do that? Anyway, that is the weakness of Harry Potter. You lose your wand, you lose your magic. It's that simple. Another weakness would be your voice. If you can't say things, you lose your magic. Sanderson, of course, we spoke about Mistborn. If you don't have any metal, that's it. You, you don't have any metal. My mages are limited by their Elamar, which is their internal, like it's a well of power inside you that regenerates, but you've got what you've got. It's not a weakness. That's a limitation. You can use it this much and then you can't use it anymore until you recharge or whatever uh, in D&D until you read your spell book again because you've lost the magic or pray to your God because you've lost the magic. Um, That was always a part of D&D that I never really caught in too much. And then it comes to that fourth part that I don't use very often, which is cost. Cost is what the characters have to pay. So Voldemort can be immortal. He absolutely can. But you have to chop your own soul up into a bunch of different pieces and you have to do horrible things to other people to gain that ability. Anakin Skywalker could gain the dark side of magic, but he had to slaughter a bunch of children to get there. That's his cost. Um, Rand Thor in the Wheel of Time can save the world with magic, but he's going to go insane doing it. So he's got to basically put up his own... huh? He might go inside because Jordan threatens it, but you know. Right. Yeah, I I love joking about that because that's the other thing. If you're going to put a cost in that doesn't actually ever have a payoff, to me, and Wheel of Time is my favorite series, so I'm picking on it out of love. But the one thing that I didn't appreciate was the whole, because it's it's like a parent, and we've all seen this parent at the mall where it's like, I swear, Jeffrey, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. Oh, you did it again. This is the last time, Jeffrey. One more time. Oh, you did it again. All right. You have pushed me to the limit. I am going to spank you next time. Oh, you did it again. Doggone it, Jeffrey. I'm going to spank you the next. It's like, dear God, just spank that child. Like, they know you're not going to do it. You're just threatening. So Wheel of Time is kind of that way. It's like, ooh, Rand's going to use magic. He's going to go crazy. Next time, next time he's going to go crazy. Oh, he use it again. But next time he's going to go crazy. And it's like, no, he isn't. Like, you're now just that threat that threatens and never actually follows through. You're actually just trolling us. Well, and and what I think he fell into the trap of is exactly why I don't use it. Because he has a cost that actually would ruin the story if he ever had to pay it. What I did is you can overcome the limitation of the Elamar in my world. You can. Okay. But the overcome of the limitation of the Elamar is to take somebody else's Elamar, which kills them. So if you're willing to slaughter a whole bunch of people, you can absolutely overcome that limitation. If you're willing to give up your soul, it's also the cost of immortality for Voldemort. Mm. If you're willing to give up your soul and be a horrible person, which I don't, that's why when, when I get in a fight with my Star Wars 
friends that are like, oh, no, you just don't understand. It's it's, you know, the main character is Darth Vader and he's the main hero. I'm like, no, he killed children. He is not a hero. As soon as you kill children, you're you're out. And so he paid that cost. He wanted the power. He paid the cost. He is a villain. He's a villain through and through, period. And so, yeah, it's that's the way I see it. If you're going to pay that cost, you're never going to be redeemed. You know, so if you're going to slaughter a bunch of other people, maybe you can justify it to yourself that the ends justify the means. But that doesn't make you a hero. It just doesn't. No, I read I, a quote. Okay. I, I read a quote. And I dug my butt off trying to figure out where this thing came from. So if anybody literally, if anybody knows what it, because it sounds like it came from a movie. But I spent probably four hours looking for the source of this quote. If anybody finds it, hit me up in the comments, shoot me an email, whatever. I would I would love to figure out where this came from. But it was a line that said, and I'm not going to do it justice because uh, I'm just doing it off of memory. This is about a month ago. But it was a line that said something like, I don't know why you like heroes. Villains are so much better. A hero will sacrifice you to save the world. But a villain will sacrifice the world to save you. It was, it was just... It blew me away when I read it. Uh, it was just on a meme. Some Someone had sent it to me or I saw it when I was scrolling some social media or whatever. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. And I literally stopped working for the next four hours trying to figure like that has to be from a movie. Who wrote this? Because I'm, I'm big on if a writer can write something that brilliant, I want to read more of that writer. If they're, if they're a movie writer, I want to read more of their scripts. If they're a, you know, whatever. And I could not find the source for that. But that was... It literally sent chills up my spine. That's a great way to think about villains. So if anybody knows, let me know. I'm dying. Um, but yeah, so costs are, are very, very difficult in my opinion. And I don't, you could say that the dead Ned, the cost is you want to die. The magic is it brought you back to life. And the cost is you are in agonizing pain for the rest of eternity, unless you can figure out how to kill yourself and you can't kill yourself. So and that's then that's what drives it's a Cthulhu Western. And what drives it is the villain has been alive for like 400 years. His wife and children have died. His family has died. Everyone he's ever loved has died. And so he's figured out that if he brings the Cthulhu gods into our world, they will eat him and he'll be dead. Now, they'll also eat everyone else. But he doesn't give a crap about that. He gives a crap that he gets to die. And so he's. And that's the sacrifice for Dead Ned. Nathaniel Boone is the main character. He also is in the same situation. He also wants to die. But does he sacrifice all of humanity for that end? Or does he stop this villain who's trying to do it, knowing that it means that he will live for eternity suffering? And that's a sacrifice. It's a huge. That's why I loved the, the Dead Ned series is because I thought it had a really awesome message. Um I think like it's worth also mentioning here, like Robert Jordan could have used his cost if he had had a way for that cost to be paid without sending the character completely over the cliff, irredeemably so. So if if your cost is something like they go mad, but they can be treated for it. It's painful. It carries over. You can only do it so many times, but but you also can't threaten a cost and never mm. levy it. Technically, in Jordan's defense, he does kind of utilize it in an, in an advantageous way. Mm. Because once the story gets so big that you stop being in Rand's head because he's doing all this stuff and you're only in the other character's heads, 
they think he's gone crazy because he's doing some really, really, really insane things. Now, once you get back in Rand's head, you realize that he had figured out the actual prophecies and he, he finally got the key. And obviously we didn't want to be in his head because we wanted to live through the whole, oh, wow, he really has gone insane. Hmm. So the story does benefit from it a little bit. But once you get back in Rand's head, you realize, oh, yeah, no, he didn't go insane. He's actually brilliant and just figured all this stuff out. And oh, look how Superman amazing he is. So, yeah, that was if I have one dig about the Wheel of Time, it's that you added a cost and then you were just that annoying parent at the mall who constantly told your child that if they did it one more time, that that there was going to be consequences. And yet they kept doing it and you just kept saying there'll be consequences. And so that's my only real gripe about the Wheel of Time. Don't that be that annoying parent. It just wasn't a cost that that ever was capitalized upon. So those are the, four, you know, again, just a. It's making sure that your magic system is there for the story, for the theme, making sure that you understand that it has to fit in with the world. It has to drive the world. It has to, you know, to extrapolate through the world and, and become more than what it is because people are going to use it in ways. You have to decide whether you're going to heavily define it or not define it at all. And then that will decide how much you can actually use it to solve conflicts within a plot. And then, you know, I break it down to abilities, limitations, weaknesses, and costs and use those four things to help me really design a magic system that is impactful to the story. I mean, that's, that's really what it breaks down for me when I'm talking magic systems. And I think that is a great way to end this episode. And we will see you soon for the next one. Bye. <laughs>